Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. David Petker talks with Dr. Brad Woodworth and Dr. Do Young Cho about their article in vitro evaluation of a novel oxygen-generating biomaterial for chronic rhinosinusitis therapy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host, Dr. David Petker, and with me today is the dynamic duo from Birmingham, Alabama, Drs. Brad Woodworth and Do Yun Cho. Guys, thanks for being with us. Hey, glad to be here. Thank you so much for having us today. Well, it's our pleasure and, and the listeners' pleasure. So the last time we had John was about a year ago, and we talked about some really cool stuff you're doing at that time, and you continue to impress. So today I want to talk about your manuscript, in vitro evaluation of a novel oxygen-generating biomaterial for chronic rhinosinusitis therapy. A lot of big words in that. You're going to have to dumb it down for me. Tell me about what got you interested in, in this, and, and maybe you can explain the effects of hypoxia on the, uh, the sinus mucosa. Sure. So, so uh, hypoxia um, has long been known to be a... Um, creating an acquired CFTR dysfunction. We published on this back in uh, 2012. Um, and the, the concept is that, you know, from a sinus osteal blockade, you induce a low oxygen state in the sinus. And, you know, that causes an a proliferation of anaerobic bacteria, but it also causes an acquired CFTR dysfunction, which is a, a concept where you get a localized CF-type phenotype, so a cystic fibrosis. And so what that means is that you get a thickened mucus, you get a poor function of the mucociliary transport apparatus. And so uh, we've, we've looked at this for a long period of time, and uh, Dr. Cho here, last, I think it was last summer, basically was discussing um, with me about using an oxygen-generating biomaterial, which we've published quite a, extensively on some uh, nanoparticles and biomaterials with different types of using CFTR potentiators, using antibiotics, um, and, and, and the like. So this was a, a project that, that Doe developed. And uh, Doe, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? So the idea is exactly what the breath said on top of that. Uh, a lot of people, pre uh, they wrote a paper about the rows of the hypoxia micro, for example, like the HIF alpha, like HIF alpha, like it's been increased CRS. And then when I trying to re induce chronic sinusitis model, it's not a polyp model, but, you know, chronic sinusitis model in the rabbit, the rabbit doesn't develop sinusitis, even lymphocytes are chronic, unless their sinus cavity become very occluded, which means become very hypoxic. So my thought process was the uh, the hypoxia could be one of, one of the key factors which could lead the their hypoxic environment and causing chronic inflammation. So that's why the idea was came out uh, that why don't we just develop something uh, trying to to induce oxygen. So that's why reducing the hypoxia and also increase the oxygen supply into the uh, environment. And when I'm looking over, there are a lot of people like really trying to develop something like uh, oxygen generated by material. But they're still pretty in the uh, very earlier stage, and a lot of materials appears to be very toxic. Uh, it sounds like uh, to uh, the cells, for example. But now they're trying to develop something like injectables. You can inject the blood, uh, or but the, the how how much the oxygen coming out from that is only about a few minutes. So um, that's why I say it's pretty earlier stage. So 
we try to develop something we can include into the sinus cavity, which is not toxic. So that's why idea with the uh, trying to use similar material, but we're trying to add uh, which more biocompatible, um, such as the beeswax. It's, it's not like, you know, it's not, uh, we don't think it's toxic. And combining it and trying to generate the nano, uh, the uh, biomaterial which can release the oxygen. Awesome. Very cool stuff. Um, so, so according to the manuscript, um, you, people have used calcium peroxide before. But the problem is, is that it, uh, it turns into oxygen or it dumps the oxygen right away, and it's got the byproduct of hydrogen peroxide, which is a free radical or, or something like that, right? That's yeah. correct, because it can be toxic to the cells. Yeah, okay. So you came up with the calcium peroxide, and then you threw in the catalase, which, which breaks down the hydrogen peroxide, and then the beeswax on top of it, Right. 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 And, and that just an, slows down the, the dilution or the, the release of the oxygen? That's right. So the, that was a genius idea of uh, Dr. Cho. So um, essentially what you're trying to do is mitigate toxicity while also um, creating sustained delivery of oxygen. Cool. So walk us through the fabrication. So in my mind's eye, I've got a soft-serve ice cream cone, and, <laughs> and I'm dipping it in chocolate, and that's the catalase. And then I dip it in... Uh, sprinkles, and that's the beeswax, and then you've got the perfect combination. H how do you do this in real life? Right. What we're trying to do is we probably have to make a calcium peroxide. It's kind of more of a mixture. We're trying to mix with the, uh, first of all, we mix with calcium peroxide with the uh, beeswax, and then on top of it, we coat it with the catalase. I mean, it's like how you put in the mixing bowl and you probably put it all together, and tried to coat it's it. Like a tossed salad. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but okay, tossed salad, not ice cream. Okay, got it. Right, right. And then got but beeswax also has kind of like you know kind of wax, you know, like a soap, like wax. Sticks. Yeah, so it sticks together. So they're trying to hold all the materials together. Again, for for the listener and and for for me, what does it look like when you're done? Is it a gel, a, a powder, a mesh? What what does it look yeah. like? It looks like a, it, it, it exactly looks like a, like, a sprinkle powder. Okay. It's like sprinkle powder. Um, it's, of course, it's yellow because it's the most major component of beeswax, so it's kind of yellow. It's kind of like powder. So the idea was that how can it deliver the sinuses a little more efficiently? I tried to make a little bit more powderish so we probably can, because oxygen delivery, uh, it could be mostly within a few days, I think, so... We probably can, uh, probably, the idea was that basically we probably can, what, what is the best form to combine as a nasal spray or yeah. nasal rinses? So trying to do that, I think the powder form could be the most efficient. So that's why we're trying to make a powder form. So basically your study had four different arms to it, so to speak. Uh, you compared the calcium peroxide alone versus the calcium peroxide plus the catalase plus the beeswax. And the, the beeswax had two different concentrations of that. And the first thing you looked at was the oxygen release, right? Mm hmm And what did that show? Our idea was shows that, I mean, they they definitely increased the um, the oxygen almost like seven days. Of course, what as, as what we thought, you know, the, we just put the calcium peroxide only without the beeswax. The oxygen just came out within like hour or two, and then they okay. and then they just dropped like instantly. 
Yeah. And then um, the statistical significance is, is only noticed uh, up to the 24 hours, like 24 hours. But it still relieves the oxygen up to the point like seven or eight days. However, um, I don't know how much like that seven or eight days release of oxygen could be uh, clinically significant or, you know. Um, right. But but uh, but what I notice is that very meaningful amount of oxygen comparing to the control group, which is calcium peroxide only, was noticed about like 24 hours day one. So which means 24 hours was pretty much stable uh, in terms of the oxygen release when we actually add the catalase and the beeswax. But if we include the beeswax more higher content, higher ratio, which means which can hold the particles a little bit more longer, that sounds like the oxygen release appears to be better. It doesn't have that significant burst release. They do have burst release, uh, appears to be a little bit more like 12 hours because oxygen is a gas. It's very difficult to hold a gas. So it's not even a liquid, so gas. So gas definitely to come out, but it's still we can hold it more when we actually increase the rate, increase the amount of the beeswax. You're just trying to affect that hypoxic microenvironment. So you constant you want constant release at the level of the cells. Yeah. Okay. And and how does the the amount of oxygen released compared to the amount of oxygen found in a healthy sinus? Do you know? Was that looked at? So hypoxia in sinuses, uh, you know, we've done probes in rabbits, and we can show that the oxygen levels really diminish um, just by blocking the ostia. And you can imagine for a human patient who's got a, a blocked ostia, they actually end up having um, very low oxygen concentrations. That, that's what drives anaerobic bacteria production and uh, multiplication. So in uh, Casper Aeneas from Denmark showed back in 2013, I believe, he used an oxygen probe in human patients with CF. Now, these patients already had open ostia, but, you know, they've got real thick, viscous mucus at the bottom. And yeah. what he found was, like, it, the, the oxygen level at the level of cells is essentially zero. And so, huh. you know, when you have a real thick, viscous sinus, that kind of stuff, um, or just a blocked sinus, you know, those scenarios are going to create up a hypoxic microenvironment. So any oxygen is, is beneficial. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so parts two and three of your study, you looked at hydrogen peroxide release, and uh, and there was less with the catalase, and then you looked at cytotoxicity, and you found a reduced cytotoxicity in, in the combined the the CPO plus the uh, catalase plus the beeswax. Are there other mechanisms for cytotoxicity other than the hydrogen peroxide? Meaning, if, if you in, in part two, if you didn't see any hydrogen peroxide, why did you need to do part three? Uh, the, the reason, basically, the reason is there's another component called the calcium hydroxides coming out. So oh, I, okay. I wrote in the discussion part because of the uh, calcium hydroxide is coming out as part of intermediate or could be the one of the final products coming out. So we just wanted to make sure that those high, uh, calcium hydroxides may cause any other um, any other issues. Uh, some of the studies already wrote in discussion that some of the studies shows that it could, maybe it could be not. So question is, we don't know how much of significancy. So uh, that's something that we just wanted to looking at the cytotoxic level from the other intermediate other components we noticed. So that's the reason why. Uh, we added the cytotoxicity uh, studies on top of the hydrogen peroxide release. 
So you're saying if I had read the whole paper, I would have been able to answer my own question. No, no, okay. no, no. All right. I mean, that's um, no, one of the things that... We're always looking for, uh, you make sure the site toxicity is is uh, appropriately matched. So, you know, any, anytime we're going to put something in a human patient or, or plan to put something in a human patient in the future, you have to do these in vitro and preclinical studies to make sure that it's not going to create harm to the patient. And, and then the last part was the chloride ion transport. So... Walk us through that a little bit, because that I was confused about as to the, the significance of that and how you studied that. Yeah, we previously published on how hypoxia influences um, acquired, it creates acquired CSTR dysfunction. Um, back in 2017, I'm going to plug another article in IFAR, um, we published on assessment of acquired mucociliary clearance defects using micro-optical coherence tomography. And that's, uh, again, 2017 by, uh, by Tipernini. And the essential uh, thrust of that was to look at um, how, how modeling with a, a hypoxic microenvironment, basically 1% oxygen. So if you put uh, cells that you take from a human patient and you grow them up in air, air liquid, at an air-liquid interface and in inserts in an incubator, um, those have an ion transport phenotype. So they, they secrete a normal amount of chloride and absorb a normal amount of sodium. As a, as a method to create homeostasis of the airway surface liquid that overlies the cilia, okay? So mm -hmm. the idea behind this is, you know, with, with cystic fibrosis, that airway surface liquid and periciliary liquid is, is depleted and crushed, and it crushes the cilia. And uh, what we found was that when we incubate uh, in hypoxia at 12 to 24 hours, or 12 or 24 hours, um, you can actually induce an acquired... CFCR dysfunction that's very consistent with a partial CF phenotype. So what you'd have there is you'd have some chloride secretion, but you but you you know you don't get rid of it completely. So it's not like having genetic CF, um, but you also have sodium hyperabsorption, which leads to uh, an increase in a milleride sensitive current. And so what we're looking there is you know with this with this phenotype that we get from hypoxia. So we know that we can create this partial um, CFTR dysfunction. And we also saw in that paper that, you know, it decreases airway surface liquid and PCL and CBF. Um, what we can do is this is a perfect model to test this novel uh, biomaterial that Dr. Cho, uh, Dr. Cho's brainchild. And so um, by putting the powder in these, these, uh, these inserts that are, have undergone hypoxia uh, incubation, you can see how it affects that phenotype. And so what you see in the paper is that we've got a, a, a stabilization of the uh, milleride-sensitive current and an increase in the Forsman-mediated current. So we're, getting, we're improving the phenotype from a partial CF back to a normal phenotype, if that makes sense. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. So how do you see this being used? You know, you had mentioned before about it being a powder and What's your vision for delivery of this to the tissues? So, like, like I said before about, um, you know, you can have a hypoxic sinus just from osteoblockade, but you also have it from thick, viscous mucus secretion at the surface, right? So, you know, we envision this could be beneficial to most patients with chronic sinusitis uh, who have thick, viscous mucus secretions. The concept would be topical delivery. Hopefully, you know, we could... Uh, try some sort of delivery that they get at home. Um, you know, the other possibility, plausible things is is uh, putting it on a stent or whatnot as a as a kind of in surgery type therapy. 
while they're while they're healing up. Do you have any other ideas yeah. on that? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, the, there's multiple options. Um, yeah. Could be uh, could be nebulizer. It's already open sinus cavities. Uh, we it's got to be a nebulizer. That yeah. Though, yeah. Right. Exactly. And then sometimes we do have some better a uh, delivery system with a you know there's a new steroid bottle came out with a new delivery system. So we can just more powerful delivery into the sinus cavities and then see whether, uh, because of the, how the uh, current uh, finding is, the, how much the oxygen release is about a little bit uh, around 24 hours. So we think that probably more frequent delivery, so probably needs at least uh, once every two or three days. So that's what yeah. I'm thinking that the more um, topical like rinses, uh, sprays, or the nebulizers, uh, those options uh, could be ideal for uh, hypoxic uh, hypoxic sinuses, and then you know the hypoxic sinuses can be seen anywhere, even the nasal polyposis, all the pulse are there, and the sinuses Absolutely. are so like yeah. swollen and everything. And even algebrinitis, sometimes you know patients really swollen with sinus sinus disease. So there are a lot of um, the, the sinus become hypoxic. But you know, uh, but another thing is that people people may ask questions. How do you know in advance that people that your sinus are hypoxic? You know that's kind of that's another good question. You know, so how can yeah. we measure the oxygen levels? We know? have experimental right. models, and yeah. of course, what Casper did with the CF patients. But you know, the the bottom line is, you know, we have very very good evidence that that the sinuses become hypoxic. Yeah. So what what are your next steps? You're going to try a, a clinical trial. You're still trying to perfect the formula what uh what's next on the horizon for you oh so we have a a non genetic model of chronic sinusitis um with rabbits that though really spearheaded and and we published in uh frontiers of uh, cellular infection microbiology back in two thousand and sixteen seventeen yeah and and so the the concept there is uh, you know the the osteo you get an osteoblockade with a a little mirror cell and what happens is you get an anaerobic growth pattern and if you release the sinus at two weeks um, that the the sinus is aerated but the the rabbit goes on to develop uh, histologic and uh, phenotypic similarities to human chronic sinusitis by three months and so uh, this would be the scenario where we love to look at you know what points in intervention you could use this right so you could use it um, you know what if you use it immediately after uh, uh, unobstructing the sinus say like in a clinical scenario, you've got a patient who's got a acute sinusitis, and you open up your sinus um, clinically and drain it. But you know, a lot of times those patients can can continue to develop problems, and that's why we keep them rinses and antibiotics and all that stuff. But what if in that scenario you could just you know insert some oxygen into the area? Would that would that make a difference, right? Um, also, at the CRS stage, when you've got thick viscous secretions and everything else, and this would be similar to a patient um, again like a CF patient who's got thick, thick secretions, they probably have hypoxia at the level of the cells. And so we could see in those rabbits, by doing injections of the nanoparticle of the biomaterial into the sinus, um, how they respond to that. How do they get treated? Does, does, is that enough? Or it, does it need to be in conjunction with antibiotics or, or whatnot? So, so those, are the answers, those are the things that are, are kind of next up. Um, okay. The important thing is that we've determined that the cellular, it, it's not cytotoxic, based on the formulation that we have, um, and we know that it delivers oxygen. And so the next step is to look in a preclinical model uh, using our rabbit model to, to make sure that we uh, get some good findings before we translate it to humans. 
Well, very fascinating stuff, and, and uh, I, I sure am thankful that you guys are so smart and can think of that kind of stuff and that you're doing that kind of research. Um, it's all dough. Yeah. <laughs> it's all dough, yeah. Okay, well, I'm thankful that you're so smart, though. Um, <laughs> so before I let you go, I've got a question for you. Now, both of you are transplants to the beautiful state of Alabama, so you may or may not know this, but uh, did you know that the peanut capital of the world is in Alabama? I didn't know it was the world, but yes, I knew there were a ton of peanuts grown here. That's interesting. Yeah, Thank 900 for... peanut farmers in Alabama. And, and Dothan, I don't know if I'm saying that yeah, right, Dothan, Dothan or Dothan? Dothan is a huge peanut oh, farmer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah that's the, that is. Yeah, right. That is the peanut capital of the world. Yeah, here people uh, drink with Coke with peanuts. You have heard about it? That's kind of nope. Alabama's tradition. So I can't do that, but like people love to drink with. They even put the peanut in their Coke. They have a special Coke, your album Coke, and they put it in the peanut and drink it. <laughs> I never no. heard that. That's weird. Um, <laughs> that is okay. Bizarre. Now, although you are the home of the peanut capital of the world, you being Alabama, Alabama is not the largest producer of peanuts in the United States. Your question is. Which state is the largest producer of peanuts in the United States? Maybe since it's you, would I say Wisconsin? <laughs> <laughs> well, I that's a no good idea. guess. Let's say Hawaii. Hawaii. Is that final answer? Uh, yeah, Hawaii. It's because of when I go to Hawaii, they have a cash, cash nuts most coming from Magnolia Hawaii. Nuts. Yeah. yeah. But they're not peanuts, right? So, uh, no, no. Yeah. The answer is Georgia. Oh, yeah. And so 50% of all peanuts grown in the United States are grown within 50 miles of Dothan, Alabama. But as you know, that's right on the border or very close to the border of Georgia. Georgia. Wow. Yeah. Wow. All right. So. That's good. Well, you learn something new every day. Thank you. You do learn something new every day, especially on uh, the Scope It Out uh, uh, podcast. So, <laughs> guys, thanks so much for, for taking the time, and uh, thanks so much for the, the the fascinating stuff that you're doing. We really appreciate it in advancing the field and things. And, listener, thanks for tuning in. Uh, and you can look for Brad and Doe's paper, as well as other new papers, at the IFARS website. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.